In this, the third and final podcast recording of the book launch for the book New Monasticism as Fresh Expressions of the Church, the panel of contributors enter into dialogue with the gathered audience around their questions and thoughts. The panel includes Aaron Kennedy and Ian Mobsby from the MOOC community, Graham Cray, the Archbishop's Missioner and Leader for Fresh Expressions, Ian Adams from CMS Small Missional Communities, Chris Rogers of the All Hallows Bow Church community, and Andy Freeman of the 24-7 and the Reconciled community, Diane Kershaw of the Order of Mission, Tessa Holland of Contemplative Fire, and finally Brother Sam of the Anglican Franciscans. The things that struck me, and these are related to the questions that I will eventually get to, one anothering, get beyond the language, praying with each other, that you mentioned, I love the Islamic tradition where if you're on your knees at a certain time, you know that everybody else is with you, I think that's great, and 12-step that Aaron mentioned. Um, And one of the things that has concerned me, because I am also, uh, I I never like to criticise others for what I have in myself, and that is the desire to be inclusive, yet at the same time, I I think, Without being too, I there's no black face here or Asian face here. And I, the language is interesting because the language of new monasticism has been very academic. Now, I love all of that and have, have, have studied academically, but I wonder how much of it is cultural because of, you, know, you move in different cultures uh, and different people have different things. And the interesting thing about the 12-step fellowship I attend and have been doing so for six years is that certain, I hate to use this word, but class, you get everyone. And the reason we're in that meeting, and again, it's, completely by your volition. Well, actually, it isn't a choice, because if I don't go to meetings, I don't keep my sobriety. So I, I just wondered how... Maybe it's a work in progress, and you were talking about um, being in um, Tower Hamlets, yeah? That, that obviously you have moved into the inner city, and I remember that right from when I was in Moss Side as a student. That was moving to the inner city. Then we all had nervous breakdowns because we couldn't cope with it. Um, but in terms of how we would be inclusive from this tradition, without making the other wrong, I'm big on that as well, we wanting to talk to each other. I just wonder what the panel thought about that. Um, there's some connection with contemplative spirituality. There I go talking too loud again. Um, and uh, I guess other traditions, other faiths, other people, people who don't fit into our way of doing things. Um, so the connection, I think, I guess I think about it in terms of the Trinity um, and Trinitarian Trinitarian faith is necessarily um, contemplative because it's it's a, an irresolvable conundrum, if you like, and it's something that you've got to surrender to. Um, so, just to sort of plant a seed, I would say that there's an otherness at the very centre of contemplative spirituality, and I don't think it's I don't think we've really got into the practice of it yet I'm, um, or seen its full development. But I, I think I would, I would probably bring it back to hospitality. That's a word that's come up over and over again. So I think by accepting the otherness within the heart of the Trinity um, and in the heart of ourselves um, and in uh, the very midst of our communities, um, we start to develop the virtues and the skills necessary for being hospitable to people of other faiths, um, people from different backgrounds, people who don't get our language and and uh, fit in with us. So I'd like to say that the contemplative heart of new monasticism uh, has lots of potential for that sort of stuff. Just something to complement that uh, about race and class. The if I have when I get the chance to have a quiet day. I actually go to the Roman Catholic Franciscan Centre uh, just outside uh, Canterbury because I live near there and they can normally find a room for me. And uh, I, every single year, those who have come to study there, I can't believe the racial mix. Uh, my wife is Jackie. She has a particular affinity to a nun called Jacqueline uh, who was one of the first Malagasy to take life vows as an Anglican religious. Uh, I 
Therefore I don't for a moment think this is a racial thing, although I think we all tend to live in our racial ghettos if we're not careful. Uh, I do think we need to be careful that uh, uh, articulate middle class people uh, there's two dangers. Uh, we use language that keeps other people out and we think we're doing it because we can talk about it. <laughs> and therefore I do think you're giving us a very proper challenge that we need to develop the practices more than the vocabulary. Uh, uh, in, in that I do not see any barrier that Christians need, uh, as you quoted me, one anothering uh, to help live faithfully for Jesus in their circumstances. That, for me, is almost the bottom line of all of this. Yeah, I think I just want to add to that. I mean, I think the mistake of some network churches is that they end up being like attracting like. Um, I think the challenge, which I think within new monasticism, is about practicing presence. So, for example, Moot started off as a network community which has now got a calling to serve a particular place. And that place, I think it's the, the idea of presence and network, is a calling to mission, that therefore it's got to serve whoever turns up in that place. So I, I think the challenge of new monasticism is to avoid the romanticism of the fluffiness. And I get a bit nervous about some of the Celtic spirituality, which seems to me a little bit uh, 19th century romantic, um, since something in the boat type stuff. Um, and I'm much more into the hard graft of living it on the ground, which is about practices and about openness to that. So I'm hoping for us in St. Mary's Aldermary, the Moot community, that we have the challenge of the homeless people who, uh, outside the church, is the only tap in central London that homeless people can get water, and it is a gathering point. So how is the Moot community going to practice hospitality to the homeless people who gather around that? What about the, the rich people who are so spiritually impoverished working in the city that they work all the hours made to have the nice holidays but feel utterly alone and terrified? Many. I see a lot of people like that already. And what about all the people who uh, grew up with ideas in their tw 20s of this great life and then suddenly finding life very difficult and finding no answers and finding church a disappointment in the fact that it often feels oppressive rather than transformational? So that is our challenge, is that how do we live that out? Um, and so this is about practices. This isn't about clever language, I would argue. This is about us living something authentic and very old. Yeah, uh, an uncomfortable challenge. And uh, if we take the monastics seriously, you know, that, that they, they challenge us. Some of the, we're, we're thinking about down in the part of the world where I, where I live at the moment, about what we might do next and how we might engage. And one phrase we're working with is the idea of forgotten people. So who are the forgotten people where, where we are? And they, they might be the hopeless, but they might not be. It might be some other, some other group. Uh, we live in South Devon, so I'm not... There are some homeless, but there's not many homeless. But there are some forgotten people in, in what many people think is, is an idyllic part of the world. So how can we be there f for, for them? Five years in Harrow uh, with Soul Survivor, our primary form of evangelism was friendship evangelism, which did exactly what you just said. I think what you just said, we... We actually bred a community of white middle class kids with the odd few that were tapped in. And when we moved to the East End, we were very keen. We were not going to be a network church or a friendship evangelism you know, is key, but we just felt that we, we're an Anglican church, so the parish has to be our mission field and local church for us is key. So we have, we have told a few folk, we love the fact that you're coming, but please, you're not local and we want to really, what we don't want to grow is a community that's, that's um, networked all over the place. It just it isn't what we're called to be. Uh, and we've said to folk, unless you move into the parish or at least near enough the parish, then actually please think about if this is the place for you because this is our key DNA of what we're trying to do. And I think because we've got that local parish kind of system that uh, is, is so key to the Church of England, we're actually... Um, we're fishing the local pond and we are a community there was 35 on Sunday and actually I'd say a good 50-60% of us uh, weren't white and I think the key to, to doing that growing a community like that is friendship evangelism is great but it, it grows the same kind of folk because people tend to move around in similar circles whereas we're trying to say well that's fine but 
this is our mission field, these are the people we're here to love, these are the people we want to engage with. So uh, when we're out there doing social action or we're out there uh, doing something in the community, we're actually wanting to engage with the community, whoever they are, because this is our local, local area. So I think that's key for us, is that the parish, uh, and our parish is multicultural, um, 60% Bengali community, so uh, we want to embody that in, in our worshipping community as well. More questions? I'd like to come up to the microphone. Uh, Gordon Banks, Diocese of Dichester. What does the novitiate look like in new monasticism? Now, novitiate is the process, quite a long process, by which people discern their call to live within that community. Do you want me to? I can start by telling you what we hope it's going to look like with our little community at Reconcile. So we've just drawn up a rule and we're all going to start a novitiate year. So um, for us it's going to be a year. I mean we're working on a seasonal vow rather than a lifelong vow. So maybe three to five years. Um, but novitiate year would, would it consist of us essentially the, the key task reviewing together and individually what we're committing to. Um, probably taking on a symbol of that vow, but if it's a ring, not wearing it, putting it around our necks on a, on a necklace or something like that, but something that, that, that symbolizes that we're, we're waiting. Um, and I think it's probably going to be the tri- trigger for us to have much more intentional uh, relational discipleship with each other, so holding ourselves accountable. Um, I talk about Francis a lot because he inspires me, but I'm always struck by the idea that Francis, and I think this is right, I hope it's not just a story, uh, that Francis used to make himself accountable to one of the youngest brothers each year and, and defer meticulously to him. And I like the idea that whoever we are within the community that we're deferring mutually. And I think within the Vichyot year, I'd want to see as we go on some element of, of new members actually helping those who've been around for a long time to review, um, whether that's be re- renewing a seasonal vow or something like that. So I think the key thing is it, 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 it provokes relational discipleship and it provokes review. I think that's the thing that most attracts me to the idea of a rule of life, particularly amongst people who are exploring faith for the first time, is it makes discipleship implicit, but we all have to take part in that. So I'm quite excited about that journey for us. In, in the order of mission, we have a, a kind of a process of exploration, uh, so that's, that's pre-taking uh, vows, uh, and that can, that can take years, to be honest. Um, perhaps the, the more kind of uh, official engagement with that would, would be at least six months where people are, are, um, are encouraged to be building relationship and be very intentional about building relationship with other people that are part of the order of mission, going on retreat together, uh, kind of chewing the cud, I guess. Um, what is it to be a people that, are, uh, that have a, a shared rule of life? What is it to be people that are committing to be in relationship with one another? Um, we have a, 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 a temporary period, people take temporary vows for a minimum of three years and again during that time it's a, a, a time of, of, of relationship building, everybody would have an accompanying member, so somebody who is um, part of the order of mission, normally a permanent member of the order of mission where you're just able to process what is this what is this about, what is it to, to live this rule of life, what is it to be part of this community, what is it to be a disciple of Christ and to be called to make disciples uh, uh, amongst our communities and, um, and although we, we do take permanent vows um, th- th- those vows are in a sense reviewable every six years um, as we uh, as a chapter so all the permanent members of the order of mission would gather uh, to, uh, to look at who would be uh, the next senior guardian or superior whatever uh, language is, is understandable um, and, uh, and at that time, that, that's the time for people to review uh, the vows that they've made. But at the heart of it is, is accountability. Uh, accountability, we're journeying together. That's part of the vows that we make. It's part of the way that we're committed uh, to living our lives. And, um, and so that's got to be very much at the heart of, of the, the vows that we take and of the, the journey that we're making from temporary into, uh, into permanency and then beyond that. So relationship and accountability at the, at the very heart of it. Um, within Contemplative Fire, um, I think we're all novices. We're just um, coming up for our seventh birthday at Pentecost. And there, we don't have a formal 
um, novitiate at all, but we're asking questions about it. And our association and drawing alongside traditional monastics has meant that we're asking some serious questions about commitment and what it means to commit to a way of life. At the moment, somebody jumps in and becomes a companion, um, and that might take two minutes to decide. Somebody might just go, yes, this, I know this is right for me. Um, somebody else who I've been, who's been an explorer alongside us, um, she's taken her four years. Um, so, so we're open to, to the length of time that it takes for people to consider this as a path um, of, of, of following Christ. Um, at the same time, we meet together once a year as a whole community, or we try to anyway, and, and we renew our commitment to the rhythm of life for the next year. But it is for each person to find their own way of fulfilling that rhythm. Um, of, of meeting with a spiritual director or, so, or soul companion um, and of, of working it out in their daily life. So we don't have a formal novitiate, but we're asking questions from having listened or been alongside traditional monastics about what this might mean for us. And I think we have a way to go and we have a lot to learn. Oh, there's another possible way in, and this is all very exploratory, but from, from my role, what I find is various places who are recognizing the need to sustain the vocation of people to be maybe quite isolated pioneers, uh, to in life plant fresh expressions of church and other missional initiatives where they are. And we're, we're recognizing, uh, I have a lot to do with ordained pioneer ministers in the Church of England, and we're recognizing that isolation is one of the greatest dangers. Therefore, to call people into a, a, a rule of life where they are accountable, where they have a pattern of prayer with others, even if they're a dispersed community, seems to us um, the only thing that's proper and honourable to do, if you like, if we're going to also honour their call and release them. Uh, my, uh, the way into that, therefore, would not so much be a novitiate, but people who explore a sustaining rule of life and get to a point where they say actually is this the way I want to live my life long term and permanently or is this something about the call of God for mission now and I, I suspect we're going to see a number of explorations as it were that way round rather than formally defined as novitiate to see if there's a call to longer term vows I just want to open up that just to make it clear for people. That if you think about the church experience that we've had, most of us, well, I started off as a non-Christian and then at the age of 18, made a commitment in a church, um, which was great. And then I moved, moved on to that and then I moved to London. Then life became very difficult. Um, and the Christian life that I had did not prepare me for some of the struggles that I faced when I came to London and then I had a very difficult time. So... This, this question about novitiate is really important because the question is asking how do we enable people to encounter the Christian faith as a deeply resourcing thing even when we're taken to the right edge of our mental health, pain, difficulty, struggle and the rest. Um, and I think what we're saying is that the church has done discipleship and the teaching of discipleship very badly because it doesn't prepare people for life. So just one comment I'd want to make is that what I love about new monasticism is the fact that its focus is not just on orthodoxy in terms of right thinking or an understanding of the faith. It's about how we live. It's about praxis. It's about how do we live this life. And the third bit, which I think we've just been discovering in Moot, is actually orthopathy, which is about right feeling. That's about how do we learn to love God, love ourselves, which I don't think I ever heard about for about 10 years um, in the church, and loving others. I certainly learned to have feel that I was a broken, sinful individual that needed God, but I didn't really hear much about actually how I was beloved of God, to touch what Tessa's saying. So the novitiate is really important, particularly in a culture where so many people are spiritually seeking, where people are desperately looking for meaning, this is not about filling people's heads with facts. This is about getting people to know God deeply in their being and how they live. So that is why this question about novitiate isn't clever language. It's actually really important to the future of the church. 
Um, and I think new monasticism then, in terms of looking at right thinking, in terms of orthodoxy, right living, in terms of all the practices about justice and mercy, not just about ourselves but others, and this idea of healthy living, well-being is the word that we've been thinking, is crucial. That Christianity, if it is authentic and, has a f- and hopefully it does have a future, <laughs> we wouldn't be sitting here, um, has to be about how we hold these three things in tension. Otherwise, I don't think we're being honourable to the Christ tradition. I just had, I think the, the, uh, the key word for me would be the word accompaniment. And that the, the process of induction or formation or novitiate is um, best expressed by the idea of accompaniment, that you've got people alongside, or people alongside each other to share the wisdom, to, to encourage, to guide, to bear pain sometimes, um, and to, to walk with you. Um, and that may be just, you know, on period of practical things and where the marmite's kept or, you know, how you do the washing up. Or, but it might also be much more on, on sort of, you know, what's going on and why, why are we having so much difficulty with that particular person? And, um, and you know, what's the, what's, the, what's the underlying ethos? It's growing into the ethos and knowing the nuances of the community and of the Christian life, you know, learning the gospel that way. More questions. You still want to please line up, but you don't have to wait for me to give you permission to stand up. Please come to the microphone. Just on community, just while he comes, I just want to tell you a story that Abbot Stewart told me because we were, whoops, as a community, slightly in awe of um, the Benedictines, and we were kind of we met with him, and he said, we said, look, how do you as monastics live out this deep spirituality? Um, and he said, um, well, so you know. Um, we found it so difficult to community that we needed a, psych- a counsellor, a psycho- uh, psychologist to join in with us for a bit. Um, they planned initially just to have them there for three months. Um, they're still there seven years later. So, you know, monastics struggle with community just as much as we do. Okay? I think my com- uh, question's sort of moving on from where we've been discussing um, in terms of hospitality. Uh, we have a group, uh, Steps, I'm Eddie from rural Oxfordshire, um, we started with about 20 people, and then that went down to a core of about six. Interestingly, all who are probably, for our context, from a less middle to upper middle class background, they're probably more working class. I know we're not allowed to talk about this anymore, but that, that's the reality of it. We meet regularly. We're very open. Anyone can come and join us. I think we're beginning to feel much like a retreat house people are be- or, or a religious community. People are beginning to turn up to get something off their chest. They're not necessarily committing to the way of life because they know it's a safe space where they can come and talk about spirituality. Sometimes when it's the admiral's wife, um, it can change the dynamic. And, and actually it's a question of how we offer hospitality as a new monastic community, if that's what we are, without it actually overpowering the quite fragile common life that we're developing. I think that uh, sometimes some people have, can have unreal expectations of, 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 of what we can offer. Um, and uh, I think there does need to be a sort of, there does need to be a defining of identity of the community. Um, and that isn't, I mean, I think it's still possible to offer radical hospitality, but actually also say, but no, you, you, you to, the, to the person who comes and sort of lands upon you, that you don't actually have an equal right to just um, um, determine what we do and how we do it and who we are. Um, and I, I, I think we, 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 we need to learn what, what the necessary boundaries are the necessary boundaries are because no one can have no boundaries if you don't attend to yourselves you'll end up with nothing to offer to anybody else Uh, um, a long time ago uh, my wife and I before before we had children were part of the network of extended households at St Michael of Elfrey and all sorts of people with very romanticised ideas would come and visit the church because of its community and thinking that a few of them could buy a house together and very, a number of extremely broken people could move in and would become wonderfully healed. And we were having to say, have you any idea how long it takes 
for a community of people to learn to be a community long before they can engage with the hurts and the brokenness because you come together more closely with one another and that somehow provides a safe place for all your brokenness to pop up you think you came for others and you find to start off with you've come for yourselves and that, that itself can become self-indulgent but the, the, the need to allow enough time for a community to become stable and then enough time for a stable community to attend to itself uh, is absolutely necessary about boundaries. It, it guarantees that long term you might have something healing to offer. But if everybody who comes can have open play, uh, you'll exhaust yourselves. I think. Not, I sound like I'm going to about to disagree. I'm not. Um, I wouldn't dare. But I think the alternative viewpoint might be that there might be a way of balancing this. So we. we I mean, we're very small and we're very new, but we try and talk about concentric circles of, of involvement and with a core group, which is a sense of the people we're looking after, but to create spaces where people who maybe are committed but not entirely committed can come and then to have an extremely large fringe and to use all three of those environments. And I think the challenge, certainly for me in that, was, was what Varnier wrote about welcoming the stranger and how actually that adds to who we are. And so I think there is quite a delicate balance and I think we've probably had our fingers burnt at times by being too open uh, and, and, and seeing how that works. But in the same way, I know that the most ex unexpected people often bring strength to who we are as a community. So it's having an open door and maybe sometimes a neutral space might help. I mean, we've, we've, we find that the meals that we have in our homes tend to be a little bit more closed because there is something... I mean, certainly where we live, about the, the thing of crossing a threshold of a house that some people are very comfortable with and some people aren't. Whereas we've used like an empty pub and things like that. Or even a prayer room where we run a prayer, prayer room for a week where it's much more an open door and we will find a lot more people can gather. That a meal there can be very, very different in flavour and maybe can be a place to open up and build a relationship. And I think probably the other thing is that the more as a group we work on individual relationships the less problems we have like that because there's always somebody coming with somebody so we don't tend to do massive open invites very often but we will always encourage people to invite friends and come with friends and try and connect with individuals um, and how, I think God's been good to us in that, that we haven't had too many people to deal with but I think maybe there's a thing about concentric circles of involvement and, and, and commitment that might work but I think there's also something about um, facing some of the difficult things as well. I think there's something about Britishness sometimes that we back away from that whole of life honest thing. Um, so there's a, almost a cultural norm that we need to cross to be that vulnerable about opening up to who you really are. And I think you can't do this sort of stuff unless it's whole of life. So one of the key books I think in our community was the book by Abbot Jameson where he talked about the thoughts that distort, and particularly um, opening up the idea of sin as the thoughts that distort, because sin being a very shaming language, he then rightly um, said, well, name that, and that traditionally is about fear, anger, um, and pride. Um, and actually, I think sometimes community is very difficult unless you name these things that end up in the middle of communities, don't they? Because our brokenness, as Jean Vanier talks about quite a lot, ends up in the middle of our relationships. So to be able to live out the virtues in terms of peaceableness, um, love, generosity, requires communities to cross that difficult place of getting beyond pride, anger. And all of that, if you think about it, is tied in with consumerism. Consumerism is about individuality, it's about consumptive gratification, it's about pride, it's about individuality, and it's about greed. Um, so to do community and to get into this new monastic stuff requires us to face the thoughts that distort to then be able to live this stuff out. And that ain't easy. Um, but I don't know how you do... And that's got to be empowered then by God that transforms us and then it takes us deeper in our belovedness to be able to face that um, and I think that is a challenge I think it's coming from my curiosity was in a liberal Catholic church um, and I love the sacramentality of that and also the, the ongoing story of the Oxford movement um, but what I struggled with, with this was this kind of 
no one really being very honest about who they really were. And that it's all very nice, um, but you know, it's all very lovely, um, but people really holding back from one another. I think the stuff that we're talking about here, you can't do in any tradition by holding back from one another. I think there's a depth here. Um, um, and I think that's cross-tradition. I don't, that's not just liberal Catholicism. I think that's cross-tradition. There's something about getting beyond this stuff. And if you look at Mother Teresa, if you look at any, any of the abbots um, and great fathers and mothers of the church, is this vulnerability thing, isn't it? It's about being vulnerable, um, practicing honesty, letting go of hierarchies and power and our stuff. Um, so um, I don't think we could do community... Um, very well, and I think all of us, I think lots of us have been very influenced around here by Jean Vanier in particular, some of his writing. Um, particularly, I'm trying to think whether is it, was it Peace, what's the title, Aaron? Remind me. Living, living Peaceably in a Violent World? That book in particular, for many new monastics, is a key text um, because it talks about this stuff. Sorry, um, in terms of a kind of living missionally. Um, I live in an urban estate in Sheffield. Um, it's predominantly kind of white, working class, uh, kind of underclass, I guess. Um, and, um, and I think picking up on what you're talking about in terms of vulnerability, sometimes because we have this heart for community and for hospitality and drawing people to us, actually we can miss a bit of a trick there because am I willing to cross their threshold? Am I willing to actually go there and not expect people to make the first step, but am I willing to go and, and in a sense, join another culture, not be the one that defines the culture, but take who I am and take Christ with me into that place? And I've lived there for several years now, and some people still haven't crossed my threshold, and that's just fine. Um, but I'll continue to cross, cross their thresholds and actually there are people increasingly uh, able to do that, able to come and be part of the community that I'm part of uh, and I think there's, there's, there's a vulnerability in that but I think it's really important that we're able to embrace that uh, and not be defining everything but allow other people to define things too. One of the, um, I have two children, a uh, little girl and a little boy, four-year-old and six-year-old, and moving to an inner-city area, we have a big house, we have people living with us. One of the complexities for us of living in community is actually how do we manage the home with two children there, particularly when people do turn up to our home. And, um, and then, you know, we had somebody recently who came along, they said, that they'd been a nun, they'd been a part of an order, uh, they were interested in what we were doing, and uh, we, we started to get to know this person, and then there were little clues that was something not quite right when she prayed the prayer from Sister Act, Whoopi Goldberg prays for the Republic, and we thought there's something not right here. And then she turned to us and told us that she, uh, we asked where her mum was from, she said, I can't tell you, it's top secret, and then she went on to tell us that she worked for the CIA, and we realised pretty quick that actually this person was not quite with us and it's how do you have a community when you've got a four-year-old and a six-year-old when actually I have to care for these children uh, in this home as well and they're a part of our community as much as anybody else is and uh, and there are big issues around that that we're on to work through at the moment and I think for us it's when there is a group of you together then when people like that come along, then you can you share that burden together. It's not just about us and our family. We can actually say, actually, this person is not appropriate. We're not, we don't feel quite right with this person being in, in our home with our two children. And there's been one or two other folk that we've, we've just felt a little bit like that with. Um, so we've been able to share that burden with those in, in the community. And I think sometimes we can get so caught up with this idea of this being the community and actually community is about relationships it's about carrying the burden together and uh, and we've all got places that we lay our heads we've all got homes we are not all just in my place and um, and actually that's good for us because it means we can share that burden particularly in the community where there's a lot of mental health issues i was going to ask um, about children that how do you within a 
new monastic tradition, how do you ensure that children are integral and that they feel involved in that? Because obviously, you know, in church they get Sunday school, but how do you make sure that they feel like they're as important and that their spiritual growth is developed in the same way that we're doing all the kind of adult ways of developing? You know, my child, one of my children is completely mental and can't sit still for two seconds, so contemplative prayer is not going to be work, work for him, so... Um, I just want to top in one thing that we've been experimenting with and it's still very small is godly play in the context of doing community. Um, we've got a long way to go with that um, and we hope that that will grow. But um, there's something about forms of church and worship that allow kids to part- fully participate I think is a really important element of this. And godly play is a gift for that. Some of us who feel we're going around this question the second time because of the uh, period for the charismatic movement in the 70s where there was a a lot of significant community. Uh, uh, A story stayed with me which was, uh, 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 she's a priest now, Maggie Darren, when she was a young single mum as part of the post-green community. walking along and meeting a fellow member of the community who was pushing a child in a pram and chatted away happily to the adult and moved on and heard the Spirit of God say to her, why didn't you greet me? And out of that came a whole conviction that without pretending that children are little adults, uh, the the, the, the greeting and owning and recognizing of the dignity of each person, however big, however small. Uh, I mean, there's, there's silly ways to embody it. I, I, I love the church I visited in uh, Diocese of Wakefield, where each, it's quite a big congregation, so when they do communion, there's someone on the bread, someone on the cup, and someone on the praying for children. And there was a a high court judge who was on the praying for children who spent the whole of that administration of communion on his knees so he was eye level to eye level with every child praying for them with dignity. So uh, without getting sort of romanticizing about it you can build in disciplines be it new monasticism or a parish church in which the the children are treated as participants of equal equal value and the, the very business of, of being the beloved, if you like, is communicated to them from the beginning. Um, I think I think discipleship is key, um, and we we're discipling one another, and we're discipling our children, and not necessarily in the in the kind of the practice, like like you say, contemplation may be a bit of a struggle for a five-year-old, um, but uh, but in what our values are, I think the table is the often the place of discipleship. Uh, with children, the breakfast table, the dinner table, where we're sharing life, sharing struggles, sharing uh, thanksgivings, but but also what what are the values, what's the the DNA, what's the rule that we're carrying that we're able to invest in our children and and, and bring them up in. um Say that uh, having children in a, a traditional religious community is quite transformative. Um... It raised a few eyebrows to start with, and perhaps still does. Um, maybe the fact that Richard and Chantal didn't, didn't actually get married until ten months after, Sean, after Uriel was born, and then the baptism followed the wedding, uh, also raised eyebrows. But, we, but actually, it's been, it's been a wonderful, wonderful thing for us. It's been a wonderful thing for the community. And um, it's... Uh, I mean, we clearly there's got to be a lot of flexibility. I mean, they need, the, the family needs space um, and they need, you know, different accommodation and they can't be expected to manage on £10 a week pocket money, which the brothers have. But it actually works and it's, um, we're, we're really blessed by it. And, uh, I mean, the, the, we, we've, we've set aside a, um, one of our chapels. We've we're transforming into a place which can be used for mums and, and children and we're becoming a little focus for, 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 for mothers and parents and children in the area. Um, yeah, very good. I, I, not much more to add. I mean, I'm a dad of five 
um, and uh, I'm the only one in my community with any kids. So I hear your challenge, and it's very real to me, and it, I get quite upset about it sometimes, if I'm honest. But the place where my kids connect is the prayer room. And, and I think what I would say is that I think there is a way to do contemplative prayer with kids. If contemplative prayer includes creative arts, smells, touch, taste, if we use our five senses, and um, uh, without doing a shameless plug, prayer spaces in schools.com, 24-7 is doing prayer spaces in primary schools where children are doing contemplative prayer all over the country right now. So, I mean, it, it's, it can happen. What I'm going to do is going to give a final question now, and then I'm going to give you, I think I'm going to invite the panel just to talk to people and to mingle a bit. Um, and if you need to go, please go. But I just want to give a final question, and then I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to respond to, because I think it's a, quite an important final question. If you look at the history of the church, monasticism has been a really important um, part of it, helping the church to recontextualise from one social epoch to another. Um, but monasticism has been always a minority sport. It's not always been the major tradition of the church because I think it has a huge cost to this way of life. This is not an easy calling. This is something quite costly um, and something that I think some people would assume is too much. Can I just ask you, given that you are involved in new monastic communities, how do you deal with the cost of this way of life for you? And how do you keep fresh and positive and hopeful, given the fact I'm sure you've faced many disappointments and difficulties in your journey? Panel. Shall I start? Uh, I've had a rubbish year, uh, and I couldn't have coped without lament. Um, I think that's the prayer I never got taught. Um, and so I think learning, what is it Paul said to Timothy, all kinds of prayers on all occasions, but learning to be honest with lament and to realize sometimes that the best thing we need to do with the cost is to shout, uh, but to do it communally. Uh, and my friends who are here who know me would know my biggest challenge over this last year has been being willing to share my lament with them and let them carry me. So I think those probably would be the two things. Lament that isn't individual and secret, but that's corporate. I think for me, something about uh, learning slowly to live, a, to live the pattern of descent and ascent that I think is the great gift of Jesus. It's taking, taking me a long time. Still trying to learn it. Still don't want to descend. Still would much rather be up there. But that's what I'm trying to do. And um, Stillness, actually, is a key part of that. Very uncomfortable. But I'm trying to learn some good people who, who, who know about stillness. And, and, and um, that's, that's helping. I think it's similar to what you've said, really. Um, I think at the heart of the gospel is death and resurrection, and we can resist and resist the death, but actually that's part of our lives, and that as we embrace that, then the resurrection comes, and that's the hope that we, uh, that we carry. Uh, and I think, again, the heart of that has got to be community because when we're embracing the death, we have to have other people around us that are reminding us of the life that will come, the seed falling into the ground and dying, but then um, the plant grows and, uh, and flourishes. But in the middle of it, when you're deep down in the dark place, you can't always see it. And, uh, yeah, and a bit like you. I've had a pretty rubbish year <laughs> and I think that I would have struggled if I hadn't had people around me and I hadn't understood that that reality of what it is that I believe in and, and that the, the death and the resurrection and the rhythm that is part of our journey in with, with Christ um, I think for me the um the cost has been in, in learning to let, one well, is still being in learning to let go. Um, in a way, I, I've come from a, I'm very steeped in a tra tradition, and the danger is that you cling on and you try and control what's going to happen. And um, I've had to go, let go on learning to let go, let go, let go, in order to discover it, I mean, in order to, to discover new life. Um, and uh, that's quite demanding and quite costly at times.
and costly for my brothers, but I think it's necessary. Um, I would, um, yeah, I would want to just echo everything that's been said, um, but add that what I've been really resourced by is a different, I guess, a Meister Eckhart sort of conception of God. So um, he's a coincidence of opposites. Um, and I've, I've been helped to enter into the pain and, and the, the, crop, the cost of, of my personal discipleship through the hope that in the midst of the pain God can be found in, and yes, death is only precedes, precedes resurrection. So, And also, just want to add, I think we're <coughs> helping people do do this really subtly and slightly surreptitiously through um, a meditation group that meets every week. Um, people don't really realize it, but they're learning to dwell in the presence of God um, and put aside their compulsions and um, occupy the uh, the reality that they, that is them, which I think is um, there's something crucifying about that which is to say, following Jesus. A couple of things. To continually challenge the idea that the culture has woven deep into me that life is meant to be comfortable and convenient. Uh, And instead to recognize that actually grace is written over all of it. The moment we turn all of these things into a law we submit ourselves to, we sort of... (laughs) uh, uh, we miss it, I think. Uh, a, a rhythm of life that's a gift of grace, that we may thrive in grace. Uh, but I've got another aspiration, and that is, uh, yes, I think intentional community with vows will always be a minority, but I think it's meant to be a minority for the sake of the wider church. What I pray for is that it will gradually become the norm that when you're introduced to the possibility of life as a follower of Jesus you will be part of a a group that works that with you and you with them uh, that some sort of light touch locally agreed the issues we as a group of people need to face for now rule of life will become as much the normal expectation of Christian discipleship as the slightly public school quiet time used to be when I got introduced to Jesus. And that perhaps around uh, uh, order after order that God calls into being will be very substantial circles of what you might call third order or you know, satellite people or people who get inspired by. And so that corporate seriousness about the way of life that forms you as a follower of Jesus becomes a norm without a semi-formal monasticism having to be. When um, we said we were going to move to the east end of London, a really good friend of mine, uh, Soul Survivor, said, Chris, uh, this is going to wreck your career. Um, Because that's what it's all about, isn't it? And, And I think... It's just, I found that really interesting because working in the middle class, I found it death by wallpaper. It was just, I was just getting bored to death with, 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 with that. Well, I grew up on a council estate in Yorkshire, so for me, that's, there's something, there's a life where we are that I feel like I'm actually coming alive. And as we live more simply and live out of each other's pockets and, and try to consume less and purchase less, I'm actually finding that, that we're coming to life rather than, oh, woe is me. I'm actually thinking, this is just, do you know what? This is so much wonderfully freeing um, to, to live with others in our home and not to be forever trying to keep up with the Joneses. And I think, I think there's a desperation in the church in our country for a real, a real gospel that goes beyond... Um, you know, Stepford Wives and all that, you know. I, I think there's a, 
I think there's a crying out in our churches for a non-consumeristic Christianity. And, and my prayer is, is, is exactly the same, is that, as, that, as that more of a share, a passion for living simply and living in community, I think it will captivate people's imagination. And my prayer is it will become more of a norm, that more people are wanting to move into uh, this, this way of life because it is so countercultural but so liberating. Uh, and there's, there's something, I think, quite prophetic at the moment about what, what's going on and, and my prayer is that that goes beyond a small group to to more people who are wanting to, to live like that for me this whole way of life is about growing up it's about shifting from adolescent I think sometimes there's something like about a consumptive culture that perpetuates our adolescence um, that this whole consumptive gratification thing infantilizes us emotionally um, it's all about not taking responsibility for ourselves and the world. Um, and so I think there's something about this process and the place of pain being part of growing up. And I think that's been a big part of my journey in the last two years is about growing up. Um, stop complaining, <laughs> stop whining, um, and all those life aspiration things you wanted to achieve by a certain age. Um, letting go of all of that and trusting God. And the other big thing, I think, apart from growing up and the ability to grow up, is, is what Tessa will talk about with that beloved. Um, for me, the real oasis of has been the ability to be able to not fear silence, not to fear contemplative forms of prayer, and to seek God in those dark places. And I think once you do that, you are able not to fear life. And you're able to let go of of difficult things for I feel more alive now through all of this and all the cost of this um, than I have ever felt before so there's something about this ability to give gets repaid in a sense of that depth and who we are so and I've seen that in your lives and sharing you know just in the, the couple of years that we've been living and Graham was around when I became a Christian so he knew what I was like before um, but, you know, I see that knowing the journey that I've shared with some, some long times, some short times. So there's something about this being a depth. It's not just a, this isn't just a mission strategy to get more people in. This is something that changes our lives to somehow get closer to what Christianity is all about. The only thing I want to say is I, I believe God is inviting his church on a journey. And... Uh, and this is just another step and another part, another component. And uh, I'm uh, old and experienced enough to be still rather excited about the possibility. I could be Episcopal and do a blessing, as long as you don't think that it actually means you now have to go. Okay, so <laughs> The love of the Lord Jesus draw you deeper into his love. The peace of the Lord Jesus draw you deeper into his peace. And the wisdom of the Lord Jesus draw you deeper into his wisdom in your life together. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Moot Community Podcast. If you'd like more information on who we are and what we do, please visit www.moot.uk.net.